0: Ephesians chapter two verse 10. that's our text for this morning. Last week, we spent time basking in God 's amazing grace. That's Ephesians chapter two verses eight and nine. Paul said, "For by grace you have been saved through faith, this is not of your own doing. It's not by works. it's the gift of God, so that no one may boast. That's God's amazing grace. He saved us by His amazing grace. But this morning, in Ephesians 2.10, Paul is going to set our gaze squarely on God's amazing work. Amazing grace last Sunday, amazing work this Sunday. As we've studied through Ephesians chapters 1 and 2, we've learned that in our salvation, we were spiritually raised from the dead. We were freed from slavery to sin. We were rescued from God's just wrath as a result of our union, our vital union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And now Paul speaks of our salvation in terms of us being a new creation, created in Christ Jesus. From amazing grace to an amazing work, that amazing work being a new creation in Christ. Let's turn our attention to our text for this morning. If you have the ability with us, we would encourage you to stand in reverence for God's word. Paul, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pens the following words in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You may be seated. Let me draw your attention first this morning to God's work in us. Paul begins verse 10 declaring, for we are his workmanship. Friends, that's a marvelous phrase. Before we move too far, let me mention that there's an important contrast between most of our English translations, the Bible you have sitting on your lap there, and the original Greek text. Here's what I mean. In the English, in the Bible you have sitting on your lap there, this verse begins for we. But in the original language, in Koine Greek, It begins, his. Literally, in the original text, it says, his workmanship we are. You say, well, what's the significance to that? Well, as I've mentioned before, oftentimes, not always, not always, but oftentimes, when a writer using the Greek language wanted to emphasize something, they would place the subject of emphasis at the beginning of a sentence. That renders it emphatic. Such is the case here in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. His workmanship we are. Paul wants to undergird that. He wants to emphasize that. Paul wants us to be crystal clear that we as believers are a work of God's designing. Everything that we are is a result of his work in us. Everything that we are is a result of our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, the world oftentimes tells us that we, or people in general, are a product of their environment. You are what you are because of your parents. You are what you are because of your upbringing. You are what you are because of your experiences, even. And we, even as Christians, can buy into this unbiblical thinking if we're not careful. But God's Word declares the believer is the handiwork of God's creative genius, not a result of his environment, but a result of God's creative working in his life. Being made anew, made alive in Jesus Christ. The word translated workmanship, which is the way probably most of your Bibles translates it, it's the Greek word "poema," And it's the word from which we derive our English word poem. It's a beautiful word. In the Greek, it means something which has been made, kind of in a general sense, but it can also have the idea of a, the work of an artist or the work of a composer, even sometimes translated a masterpiece, poiema, a masterpiece. That word's only used twice in the New Testament, both times by Paul. Paul uses it once, uh, first, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, to speak of God's physical creation, he says, for his God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived. Clearly perceived means sparkling, by the way. That the original language there, sparkling, so that no eye can miss it. God's attributes, his divine power, and his nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. And here's, here's the word poema, in things that have been made. God's creative power and work. In nature. Let me take you on a trip this morning. You ready? Here we go. We're going to the museum of God's handiwork. To the museum of God's handiwork. His workmanship. We stand there. We enter the front doors together. We're excited and eager. As we enter the first exhibit hall, we stand in awe as our eyes behold God's creative work in the heavens. David says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. Every star put into place and called out by night by name, every interstellar body, those known to us and those unknown to us, were placed in the universe right where God ordained it, and each one of them reflects the glory of his great name, the heavens. That's where we are, exhibit hall number one. Just taking in, just beholding God's poema in the heavens. All that he has made. The whole creative cosmos, the planets, the stars, the galaxies, they were all fashioned by the hand of God and they stand as diligent testimonies in the heavens of God's power in creation. You see, the universe radiates the glory of God. Yet, as awe-inspiring as the heavens are, They are not the masterpiece that Paul speaks of in our text this morning. Walk with me to the second exhibit hall. Here we marvel at God's handiwork in nature. Scripture declares that God created every living creature that moves. Those creatures that the waters swarm with, all according to their kind. Every winged bird according to its kind. He made the sea great and wide which teems with creatures, your Bible says innumerable, by the way. Living things, both small and great. I mean, think with me for a moment here. Snow-capped mountains, white sandy beaches, dew-drenched foliage, and critters in, in, in innumerable varieties, colors, shapes, and sizes. God created every single one of them. Let me just draw your attention to the toucan for a moment. Creative handy. Nature radiates the glory of God. Yet as awe-inspiring as nature is, it is not the masterpiece that Paul speaks of in our text this morning. Walk with me to the third exhibit hall. Here we stand in wonder as our gaze is fixed on a newborn child. A precious blessing comprised of over a hundred trillion intricately complex cells. I mean, just the DNA in one human cell contains roughly the same amount of information as are in a thousand books, each consisting of 500 pages, typeset in small print, fine print. That's just the DNA in one human cell. David says, you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb, I praise you for I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when it was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw, it took in my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not one of them. Fearfully and wonderfully May. Augustine, one of the church fathers, once said this. He said, Men go abroad to wonder at the heights of mountains, at huge waves of the sea, at the long courses of rivers, and, and the vast compass of the seasons, at the circular motion of the stars, and yet they pass by themselves, human beings, without standing in wonder at God's handiwork. Man, human beings, are without contention, the crowning apex of God's physical, creative work. I mean, the heavenly host can't even rival man for this position. For not one angel was it ever said of him to have been made in the image of God. But as wondrous as man is, not even he is the masterpiece that that Paul speaks of in our text here this morning our tour draws to a close, travel with me to the final exhibit hall. Above it reads Ephesians 2.10. This is the second and the final time that Paul uses the Greek word poiema in his writing. Here in this verse before us, Paul refers not to creation in general, not to physical creation, but rather to God's recreative work in the life of a sinner saved by grace. Friends, God's most stupendous creation, his ultimate workmanship, his magnum opus, his his most creative work, his masterpiece is the one, despite being dead in trespasses and sins, has been made alive together in Christ, raised with Christ, seated with Christ in the heavenly places because this man or this woman is the subject of two creations. That of being made physically and that of being recreated anew in Christ Jesus. You see, his or her very existence is a result of the creative genius of God. The old passed away. Behold, the new has come. You see, as surely as the stars and the planets, the sun and the moon, indeed the whole created order declared the existence and the power of God, nothing declares his glory, nothing declares his power, and nothing declares his excellence more than a life redeemed by grace. That is God's poema, his masterpiece. You're sitting here this morning and you know Jesus Christ savingly. You are a work of his hand, his masterpiece, his handiwork. A once dead man made alive in Christ. The redeemed are God's magnum opus, his poetic masterpieces. But notice again that Paul emphasizes that all of this has been accomplished through the agency of, of Jesus Christ. Look at your Bible. He says for we are his workmanship. Again, literally, his workmanship we are, created in Christ Jesus. Friends, those two words in Christ, though brief, are most glorious. They serve as the most profound statement of the inexhaustible significance of believers' salvation. Those two words, in Christ, They tell the believer's security in Christ, who alone bore God's righteous judgment against sin. Those two words tell the believer's acceptance in Christ, with whom God alone is pleased. Those two words tell the believer's future assurance in Christ, who is the resurrection and the life, and the sole guarantor of our inheritance in heaven. Aside from the words, but God, which we studied a few weeks back, No other two words carry more significance to the believer than the two words, in Christ. In Christ. Are you found in him? There's only two places that men are found. Either in Adam, we're born that way, or in Christ, having been created anew, recreated in Christ Jesus. Paul says that we were created in Christ Jesus. I think he's pointing back to verses 8 and 9. I think he wants us to be crystal clear about something, friends. He wants us to be crystal clear about the fact that what we are is wholly resultant of, or we are wholly dependent on God's sovereign, gracious initiative and activity for our salvation. There is no such thing as a self made man spiritually. Matter of fact, the word created there in your Bible, created in Christ Jesus, that very word in the original language is only used of God. Created in Christ Jesus. Only used to describe God's activity. It has the idea of manufacturing or fabricating something, but fabricating something with a spiritual frame. Created in Christ Jesus. It denotes something that only God alone can produce. I think the gears in Paul's mind are cranking here as he's writing. When Paul says that we were created in Christ Jesus, I think he's drawing an intentional contrast here between our old creation in Adam and our new creation in Christ. You see, when when God made the first man, when God made Adam, he perfectly furnished him or perfectly fit him to do every good work. I mean, that's what God told Adam to do. He he put him in the middle of the most beautiful garden on this blue dot in which we live. And he said, Adam, work it. Work the garden. Do every good work. Please me. Honor me in your work. But we know that sin entered the world. Adam fell. Sin brought chaos and disharmony and death. And now God recreates those whom he has chosen to save. He unites us to his son Jesus Christ by grace through faith and he brings into existence what did not exist previously, namely new spiritual life that has the ability to live out its original purpose. Recreates us and gives us the ability to do those good works that were lost in the fall. That were lost in Adam. You see, Ephesians two ten, I think, is an answer to David's prayer in Psalm fifty one ten. What David prayed there, can you remember? Psalm fifty one ten. David said, "Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me." And here Paul's writing. I don't actually think there's probably a connection here, but in my own heart and mind, there is. And here Paul's writing, and he says, "His workmanship we are created anew in Christ Jesus." Spurgeon once said, Hearts of stone he, God, can take away and give hearts of flesh. He can take the infidel and create in him a mighty faith. He can take the harlot and make her a pattern of purity. The lowest of the low and the vilest of the vile, he can put them among his people. You ever seen a painter with a palette in his hand? Ugly little daubs of paint on the palette? What can he do with the spots? We'll go in and see the picture. What a splendid painting. And yet, in an even wiser way, does Jesus act towards us? He takes us, poor smudges of paint, and he makes pictures of his grace out of us. Masterpiece. A masterpiece. It's neither the, br- the brush nor the paint that has significance, but rather the skill of his own hand with which he does it all. I love that. Every Christian is a poetic masterpiece of God and the church collective is his supreme divine epic. Let me ask you this question. Who's the hero of Ephesians 2:10? Who's the hero of Ephesians 2:10? I hope every time you open your Bible, it just resonates. The hero of Scripture is the Lord Jesus Christ. The redeemer of man's lost, fallen soul is Jesus Christ. He's our rescuer, our hero. He's the hero of this text and every text. From Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation chapter 22, Jesus Christ is the hero of all Scripture. Every redeemed poem, every redeemed masterpiece is created in Christ Jesus and it is full of him, the hero. If the heavens declare the glory of God, so every poem which he has made, every masterpiece which he has made, that speaks to you, Christian, if you know Christ savingly. That speaks to us, church, collectively and globally. If the heavens declare of the glory of God, And so we, his poems, his masterpiece, are meant to proclaim his fame. Let me ask you this question. Are you doing that? How are we doing there? I fail. I mean, confessions of a pastor. I fail. But we ought to be growing here. We ought to be growing individually. We ought to be growing collectively as a local church. Being a light among darkness to the lost world around us. The psalmist said it this way in Psalm 71. He said, My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day, for their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come, I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. How are we doing there? How are we? If if the heavens declare the glory of God, then how much should we, the poema, the recreated ones, the crowning apex of God's creative work, how much more should we be radiating, resonating, declaring, demonstrating, speaking forth the glory of God? That's weighty. That's a weighty responsibility. But God gives us all the grace we need to obey him. God's work in us. We are his poema, his masterpiece, his magnum opus. Secondly, let me draw your attention to God's work through us. Paul here tells us the purpose of our being created anew in Christ. He says, For we are his workmanship, literally his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus, and here's the purpose for good works. I don't know if you notice this or not, but there's a repetition of the word works that is here in verse 10, and then it appears back in verses 2, 8, and 9 as well. Remember, the first mention of works is negative. Paul tells us clearly that salvation is not of our own doing. It's not the result of works in verse 9. Our works contribute nothing to the equation of our justification. But no sooner has Paul rejected the role of works in our justification than he brings them up again in a a positive light. Saying that God has indeed created us in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works. Good works. Let me give you two important errors that exist concerning works in relation to salvation. If you don't write anything else down, write write these down. Two errors, two critical errors concerning works in relationship to salvation. Number one is this, and this is the lie from the pit of hell. In order to gain enough merit for your salvation, you must add your good works to what Jesus Christ has done. That is a fatal error, friends. And really, that's, that's, that's not only the plight of the Roman Catholic Church, but that's, that's really the, the theology of every single worldview outside of Christianity. It's what can you do to appease your God? What can you do to add to what he's already done? Every single worldview, every system of religion settles on that common point. Here's what you can do. Now add it to what your God has done. In order to gain enough merit for your salvation, you just simply add your good works to, in Christianity's case, what Jesus has done for you. We need to remember that good works are never to be relied upon as items placed to your credit in the running account with our supreme creator. That's error number one. You can add something. It's your faith plus what Jesus has done. Error number two is this. Because we are saved by grace through faith, that means that your good works have no connection at all to your salvation. Because we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that must mean then that your good works have absolutely no bearing whatsoever or no connection whatsoever to your salvation. Both of those are critical errors. False. False. Can you add anything to your salvation? False. Can we preach justification apart from the fruit of a justified life? False. False false I was thinking about this this week in my study I I think those of us hopefully all of us that that have a a good theological foundation a good soteriology it's what we understand to be true about salvation soteriology those of us that have a strong biblical soteriology if we're not careful we can read the words good works and we can count them as bad words we think good works, that's a bad word. That's a bad word. Good works aren't a bad word. Let me, let me help you understand that just a little bit here. Here's just a smattering of verses. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every, say it with me, good work. How about Colossians 1.10? Walk in a manner that's worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every, say it with me, good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. 2 Thessalonians 2, 16 and 17. Now may the Lord, Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave himself for us as eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish you in every good work and word. Second 2 Timothy two twenty one. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Here's a familiar one to probably all of us. Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. All scripture is God breathed, right? All scripture is God breathed or breathed out by God is the original language and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Brothers and sisters, good works is not a bad word. It just needs to be understood in its proper context. And that's what Paul is doing for us in our text this morning. So how are we to understand the role of good works in relation to salvation? First, we need to be clear about the fact, and I I want to undergird, emphasize, bold, make capital, underline, put it in quotes, parentheses, whatever we got to do so that we get it in our hearts and minds. We are saved by faith alone, sola fide. We're saved by faith alone, apart from our righteousness, apart from any merit, apart from any work. If we stand in Christ, we stand on Him and on Him alone. We're saved by faith. We're saved by faith. Our works add no credit to heaven's ledger. It's critical that we understand that good works are a result of salvation and not the reason for it. Our good works... They are a result of salvation, not the reason for it. Works are to salvation what thunder is to lightning. The inevitable result. Works are to salvation what thunder is to lightning. Paul doesn't say that we're saved by our good works, but rather we're saved for good works. Good works will never produce genuine salvation, but genuine salvation will always produce good works. You see how that works? We have to understand its proper context. Calvin said it this way. It is faith alone that justifies, but... It's faith alone that justifies, but faith that justifies can never be alone. In other words, faith alone justifies the person, but our works will justify our faith. Or our works will prove the genuineness of our faith. True conversion will always be accompanied by graces like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, and so on and so forth. James said it this way. Here's a familiar text, James 2.17. James said, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And you hear that and you may be sitting there thinking, now, wait a second, you just told me that I'm justified by faith apart from works, and here James tells me that that faith by itself, if it doesn't have works, is dead. How is it that that Paul seems to say no works, but James seems to say works? How do we square the two of these? Are they in contradiction? Can Can we marry James to Romans? Absolutely, we can. You see, Paul is referring to works as it pertains to our justification, being made right before a thrice holy God. And on that basis, we are justified by faith alone apart from works. What James is talking about in James chapter 2 is our sanctification. James is referring to works as it pertains to our sanctification or growth, practical growth in the Christian life, post conversion post-conversion. You see, Paul is dealing with the mode of justification while James is dealing with the fact that genuine justification will always be operative. It will always be working. Always be producing fruit. J.C. Ryle, and I would commend uh, most of what J.C. Ryle has uh, written to you. If you can snag snag a book by J.C. Ryle, read it, devour it. Uh, It's good stuff. He's not Jesus, he's a fallen man like we are, but it's good stuff. Fill your Christian, your hopefully growing Christian library with J.C. Ryle material. Excellent. This is what he says. He says, tell me not of your justification. Don't, Don't tell me about your justification unless you also have some of the marks of sanctification. Boast not in Christ's work for you unless you can show the Spirit's work in you. Unless you can show the Spirit's work in you. You see, while we reject a theology that adds works to faith for justification, so we must also reject a theology that holds justification divorced from an ongoing, sanctified, changed life. Let me say it another way. Justification and sanctification have to be distinguished. They're two two different things. They, They have to be distinguished, but they can never be separated. Justification and sanctification... Both have to be emphasized. They have to be distinguished, but they can never be separated. Luther once said, "...the position of a preacher is a precarious one, for on one hand he must preach justification by faith alone, and yet he also must preach the necessity of good works. For if one only preaches faith, he gets a bunch of false converts who do nothing." But if he only preaches works, he gets a bunch of false converts who are self-righteous legalists. We're saved, we're justified by faith alone, in Christ alone. But that justification will result in sanctification. Good works. Good works. Good works serve as a validation or an evidence of true conversion. And so friends, I would say this, if there is no godly fruit, which if you, if you just can't get past the good works uh, terminology, which we should be getting past it because our Bible uses it, but if we have trouble getting past that terminology, good works, then, then think godly fruit, godly fruit. If there is no godly fruit in your life, if there are no good works in your life, then you may well be unconverted. Unconverted. There's no godly fruit evident in your life. It's like trying to win a legal matter without any evidence. Apart from any verifiable evidence, a judge and jury probably wouldn't rule in your favor on any matter unless there's evidence. And so the question I would ask you to ask yourself is, is there any biblical evidence in your life that would stand to convict you of being sealed in Christ Raised with Christ, made alive in Christ, seated with Christ in the heavenlies. Is there there any validation for that? Is there any evidence for that that could convict you of having been sealed in Jesus Christ savingly? You see, the doctrine of good works, which that's what this is, this is a doctrine. Doctrine of good works. When it's accepted by faith, it deprives man of every reason for boasting in himself. But it also takes away his every ground for despair. The doctrine of works, when we understand it biblically, it removes all ground from, 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 from boasting. That's what Paul said in verse 9, right? So that no man can boast. But at the exact same time, it infuses that man with encouragement that he might not despair understanding that he stands not on his own merit, but on the merit of Christ. Not on his own work, but on the finished work of Jesus Christ on his behalf and credited to his or her otherwise bankrupt account. Let me bring a little more practical application here. It's not only by our words that we give testimony to the greatness of God, but it's also by our works. You'll... Remember a few weeks back, I I said that we have to preach the gospel. You can't just live the gospel out and and expect people to get it. Oh yeah, I get from your life. Jesus Christ died on the cross and he rose from the grave and he's seated in heaven and he intercedes for me and I'm to know him by grace alone through faith alone. People don't get that through our our actions. They get that through our words. So we must preach the gospel. Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of Christ. But having said that, Here's the other side of that coin. It's not only by our words that we give testimony to the greatness of God, but it is also by our works. You see, our good works, in fact, pave the way for our witness with good words. If our walk contradicts our words, then we lose our testimony. We call that integrity. We want what we say and what we do to be congruent. Now, are we fallen, feeble, and frail? Do we blow it? Absolutely. Confessions of a local pastor. But, we want to be growing in that. That what we say, the gospel that we preach with our mouth, is congruent with, lines up with, is in harmony with what we do. The way that we act. So that when the lost world sees that, they don't see a glaring contradiction. Good works and good words must come from the same yielded heart. Matter of fact, one of the best ways to guard the truth is by putting it into practice. One of the best ways to guard the truth is by putting it into practice, living it, living it. If we want to be good defenders of the faith, we must not forget to be demonstrators of the faith. Jesus reminds us of our incredible privilege when he says, let your light shine before men so that they may see your, say it with me, good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's bring the plane down here this morning. Paul says that God prepared good works beforehand so that, or in order that, we should walk in them. That phrase there, prepared beforehand. Look at your Bible. That little phrase there, prepared beforehand, it harks back to chapter 1 where Paul says, He, God, chose us in Him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before Him. You see, having been chosen before the foundation of the world, adopted as sons, redeemed by Christ's blood, forgiven of our trespasses, lavished with grace, sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, we are to live lives that are distinctly or markedly different. Growing, yes. Still sinful, yes. Different, though. Different. Bearing more and more conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. For those God predestined, he also, or for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. We're to be bearing more and more resemblance to God's Son. How do we do that? We take in more and more of God's Word. I mentioned that two weeks ago. Those who spend much time in God's Word bear much resemblance to God's Son. It's the principle of relationships. You become like those whom you spend most time with. You become like those whom you spend most time with. We're to live lives that are markedly different, bear godly fruit. Matter of fact, Paul's going to take the final two chapters, those two chapters being Ephesians 4 through 6 of his letter, and he's going to amplify what those good works are and how we can practically live in them. See, Ephesians is separated into kind of two divisions here. You've got theology on the front end, we want a solid soteriology, how are we saved, what has God done for us in our salvation. We want a high Christology, what has Jesus Christ done for us. We want a good pneumatology, what's the role of the Holy Spirit in our lives. All of those things matter because Paul's going to take all that theology and he's going to apply it in chapters 4 through 6 and he's going to say, as a result of that, live this way. As a result of that, do this. As a result of that, Don't do this. As a result of that, think this way. As a result of that, speak this way. As a result of that, parent this way. As a result of that, husbands, be this kind of husband to your wife. Wives, be this kind of wife to your husband. Children, be submissive and obedient to your parents. Slaves, honor your masters. See, theology matters. What you believe matters to the practical outworking of life. Specifically, if we are to live in or walk in good works which God prepared beforehand. Not only did God predetermine eternal glory for believers, but He's also prepared good works beforehand in this present life. You see, from beginning to end, friends, from beginning to end, it's all grace. My salvation is all grace. Any any good work that I would perform, it's all grace. What's the purpose of these good works that God has prepared in advance? Well, he tells us the purpose is that we might daily walk in them for his glory. Again, we see a contrast here. Look back at verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1. How did we used to walk? We used to walk in trespasses and sins, but now in Christ, we're called to walk in a different way. Our attitudes and our behavior should now show all the hallmarks of being a new creation. Okay, here's, here's the time for you to confess. I've confessed twice this morning already. Any antique shoppers in here? Raise a hand gently. Uh-huh. Yeah, it crossed genders, and it, it crosses demographic ages. I, I, I see you. Antique shoppers, for those of you who are a little more learned in your antiquing, you know when you go to an antique store or to a thrift store or to a garage sale and you see an item that looks nice or might look vintage or old, you pick that piece up and you turn it over. And you want to know, is there a hallmark stamped on this? Is it the genuine article or is it just a reproduction? And oftentimes, makers of things... Will put the logo on it. They'll put their name on it. Or the artist will put initials on it or a date on it. Those are all hallmarks saying this item or this article is genuine. Well, good works are the hallmark of the Christian. They don't make us a Christian. Got that? Are we clear about that? They don't make us sealed in Christ, they demonstrate that we are sealed in Christ. Hallmark. Our attitudes and our behavior should show all the hallmarks of a new creation. Notice that Paul says that we're to walk in them and not to work in them. Paul says that we're to walk in these good works, which God predetermined, not to work in them. You see, God has prepared good works in advance for believers that he will perform in and through them as they, that's you and I in Christ, walk in his power and in his word. It's not doing a work for God, but rather God doing a work in and through the believer. Paul underscores this in Philippians chapter 2. Don't turn there, just listen for a second. Paul underscores that. He says, it is God. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We're supposed to walk in them, not work in them. Walk in them. Now, I do want you to do a little walking in your scripture now. Keep your finger there in Ephesians chapter 2 and turn over briefly to Hebrews chapter 13. We'll be brief here. Hebrews chapter 13 Verses 20 and 21. Here's what I want to show you. I want to show you how the two truths, that being God preparing beforehand and then we walking in them, how those two truths harmonize or converge. As we see it here in Hebrews 13, 20 and 21. The writer of Hebrews says this, Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good. Stop. That's God's work. He equips you with everything good. That's his work. Now look at the very next phrase. That you may do his will. That's your part. That's your part. He does the equipping, prepared in advance, prepared beforehand. Our part is that we would walk in his will. That we would walk in his will. As those men and women who have been made anew in Christ Jesus, his handiwork we are, his masterpiece we are. We see both God's sovereign foreordination and provision coupled right along with our responsibility to act on his provision. You say, well, well what am I to do? What's, what can I walk out of here with today, Eric, is, is, insofar as practical application is concerned? Let me give you just four brief points because we're at the end of our time. We're seated in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus, but we're not physically there yet. Spiritually, that's the, that's the truth. It is a present reality of us. Remember, Paul is so certain of its future Uh, coming that he writes as if it has already taken place. We were seated in the heavenlies but we're not there yet physically and so what are we to do? How are we to walk down here in such a way that will bring glory to God's name? Let me give you four practical brief applications. Number one we're called to walk in love. That's a good work. That's fruit of a genuine conversion, a hallmark of a genuine believer. We're to walk in love. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I give away all that I have and deliver up my body to be burned, but I have not love, I gain nothing. How will people know that you're my disciples? By your love for one another. We're to walk in love. Is it easy? No. Do we fail? Yes. Is there sufficient grace? You bet your bottom dollar. We're called to walk in obedience. This is a good work. Fruit, evidence of a genuinely converted person. We're to walk in obedience. For by this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey his commandments. For in this is the love of God that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not burdensome. That we walk in obedience. That's a good work. A hallmark of a truly converted person. Are we perfect at it? No. Do we need grace? Yes. Is it sufficient? You bet your bottom dollar. We're called to walk in faithfulness. Faithfulness. Hey, keep in mind, friends, everything you have is on loan. Your ministry, everyone who was standing up here, is on loan. Your children are on loan. Your ability to work is on loan. All your relationships, everything we have, we don't own. It's, it's been entrusted to us we're just stewards of everything that God has given us and God's word tells us 1 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 2 that it is required of stewards that they be found faithful we're to walk in faithfulness faithfulness lastly we're called to walk in holiness set apartness otherness differentness Paul's going to tell us in Ephesians chapter 4 when we get to some of the practical applications here. He says, put on the new self. And I don't know about you, but I got news I got every morning because something happens between 11 o'clock at night and about 7 o'clock in the morning. I can go to bed with a warm heart towards God and it seems almost without fail that I wake up in the morning with a cold, cold heart. Needing to be warmed by the stove, the fire of God's word. I wake up with a cold, cold heart. Heart. And so I have to put on, is the illustration. Take off the old self, put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. Holiness. Are we perfect? Absolutely not. Is there a vein of so called Christian theology that would say Christian perfectionism is possible? There is. Is it an absolute lie and heresy? It is. Positionally, we're perfect, practically, we're being made perfect will one day be perfect. And so we long for and groan for our redemption bodies. But we're walking in holiness. How about you, friends? Are those hallmarks evident in your life, at least in bud form? We're all growing and we're all in different places spiritually, but at least the bud form of all of these has to be evident in your life. Love, obedience, faithfulness, and holiness, and that's not a comprehensive list. But, but as you think about the, the, the flower of Christian virtue, so to speak, is the bud form of all those things at least present and beginning to open as we nourish it with the, I almost said miracle grow, of God's word? Thinking about it, it's probably not great theology, but you understand what I mean. As I nourish it with, with God's word. Is that true of you?